You are listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit gocentralchurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ethan Crowder. Well, good morning. It is good to see you today. Uh, If you have a Bible... Meet me in Matthew chapter 5. I don't know if you're clapping because I'm not saying turn to a minor prophet or, um, but uh, hey, uh, I want y'all to know uh, last week I wasn't here and uh, I missed getting to be with my central family. I, I told Anna as we were driving back, I said, I'm ready to go to church. I'm ready to go back to church. Uh, last week we were on vacation or two weeks ago, we were coming back last Sunday and uh, we were on vacation, and uh, we went over uh, to the west coast of Florida to the beach, and uh, we got to, people have asked, what did you do? I said, well, we went to the beach, we went to the pool, we went to the kitchen, and we went to bed, right? Uh, and we did it multiple times throughout the day. Um, but, but at one point, we were, we were sitting on the beach. I, I was sitting there underneath the umbrella. Uh, Anna and the kids were playing in the water, and it's crystal clear, uh, and uh, a manatee swims by, which was, I thought it was a shark, <laughs> really cool. Um, and, and I'm sitting there, and I think, man, I could get used to this, right? This is the good life. This week, we're going to start a new sermon series. We're going to walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Then we're going to start here in Matthew chapter 5, where the sermon begins. And over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about the good life. We're going to talk about what does Jesus say about the good life. Now, when we talk about the good life, there's any number of things we might think the good life is or that we might call the good life. Uh, Ramit Sethi is a, an author uh, and a blogger. He wrote a best-selling book called I Will Teach You to Be Rich. Uh, he authors a blog by the same title. And, and he doesn't talk about the good life, but he talks about the rich life. This is what he says the rich life is. He says a rich life is your ideal life, one where you look at your personal relationships, your finances, and your ordinary days and say, Wow. And he goes on to give some examples of what this may look like. He says that the rich life looks different for everyone. For every person, the rich life is going to look a little different. And so uh, he says that maybe the rich life looks like guilt-free vacations. That I can take a vacation, I can take my family anywhere that I want to, whenever I want to, and I don't have to feel bad about it. He says maybe it means buying that $1,000 sweater that you've always wanted but have never pulled the trigger on. Another example he gives, and I can't necessarily identify with this one, but maybe you can. He says, going to Whole Foods and buying whatever you want. Um, I'm a little more Publix and Winn-Dixie than Whole Foods, uh, but I think I, get, I think I get what he's saying. He says, maybe for you, the rich life, maybe for you, the good life, is being able to pick your kids up from school every day. Maybe it's having a flexible schedule. So maybe, maybe you have been seeking the good life. Maybe you've been seeking the rich life. Edward Fisher, he's a a professor of anthropology at Vanderbilt University. He says this, he says, when people talk about the good life, they're talking about happiness. And and I would imagine that if if we walked out here on the side, we were to go to downtown Sanford, and we were to start asking people that we met, what is the good life? We would get many different answers, but my assumption is, is that the answers that we might get, and maybe even the life that we are seeking, looks radically different than the life that Jesus offers to us here. 
And, and so here as we look, beginning here in chapter 5, we're going to look at the Beatitudes, and, and then we're going to keep walking through the, these uh, three chapters over the next several weeks. We're going to see Jesus' vision for the good life. We're going to see what does Jesus say about the good life. And this morning, as we look at the Beatitudes, we're going to see this truth. The key to the good life is future hope that gives present confidence. The key to the good life is future hope that gives present confidence. We could think of it like this, that the key to the good life is hope for tomorrow that gives us confidence for today. And so look with me here at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word. Here in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, we're going to read down to verse 12. Uh, the Spirit says to us this morning, starting in verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word that is true. And Lord, thank you that you have given us, you have shown us, you have taught us what we need to live the good life, what we need to live a life that is fulfilled. And so, Father, we pray that you would be with us even now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we look here at the Beatitudes, we, we call these the Beatitudes. It, it comes from a, a Latin word that really just kind of means happy. Uh, and so as we look at these Beatitudes, there's, there's any number of ways that we could divide these verses up. And in fact, I was telling Pastor Reed this morning that when you read different commentators, different commentators, they, they will tell you, well, you could divide them up this way and you could divide them up that way. And I was reading one scholar this week and he was talking about the different ways to divide these verses up. Uh, and he said, I'm not really sure what the right way is, but I think there's probably something to learn from all of them. Uh, and so uh, that, that's kind of the approach that I'm taking here today. But uh, the way that I think makes the most sense is the way that we're going to look at them today. And so uh, here as we look at verses 1 through 5, we see who the blessed are. Uh, who the blessed are. Uh, now, uh, the Beatitudes are Jesus' answer to the question of how to be happy. We've got to be careful that whenever we read these verses that we're not reading them as some kind of new burden. Right? So, so sometimes we can read the Beatitudes and we can think, how am I supposed to be poor in spirit and, and mourning and meek and hunger and thirst for righteousness and merciful and pure in heart and a peacemaker and, and be blessed when I'm persecuted? How am I supposed to do all of that? That seems exhausting. But that is not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not giving us new burdens to carry. Instead, what Jesus is doing is he's assuming a new heart. He's assuming that this is a picture of someone who is following him, who is trusted in him. And so now this is what this life that follows Jesus looks like. 
And so here in Matthew chapter 5, we have the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount begins with uh, the way that every good sermon begins, and that's with an introduction. And so here in verse 1 and in verse 2, we read, Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, stop right there, seeing the crowds. Look back to chapter 4, verse 24. So his fame, being Jesus, spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and those oppressed by demons and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee to the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And so we have this picture of this great crowd that was beginning to follow Jesus. And what we know from later on in the book of Matthew is that this crowd was forming, not necessarily because they loved Jesus, but because they loved what Jesus could do for them. They wanted to see the show. They wanted to see him heal the sick. They wanted to see him cast out demons. They wanted to see him do all of these great things. And so they're following him. So Jesus goes up to the mountain and he sits down. Verse 2 says he opens his mouth and he teaches them. Now there's, there's two important things to note about this scene. One of the things that you'll notice as you read Matthew carefully is that Matthew is a, he's mastered literary skill. So Matthew was a writer. And and one thing to remember, not just in Matthew, but in every book of the Bible, that there's a purpose for the writing, right? There's a reason that the the author is writing what he's writing. And so Matthew is a, uh, he's obviously Jewish. Matthew's gospel is a, it's a Jewish gospel, but it's also a gospel uh, that is painting this picture of Jesus as king. Now it's painting this picture of Jesus as a very specific type of king, And here in Matthew 5, in these first two verses, we get the picture, we get an idea of the kind of king, the kind of Messiah that Jesus is that Matthew's painting. And so he says that seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down. Now we might read that and think, well, that's interesting. What's he talking about here? Well, the custom was that Jewish rabbis, that they would go and they would sit down, and everyone else would would kind of gather around and they would listen. See, what Matthew's doing here is he's painting a picture not of Jesus as a better rabbi. He's actually painting a picture here of Jesus as the new Moses. See, if we were to go back to Deuteronomy, we would get this picture of Moses going up on a mountain and sitting down and speaking to Israel. See, Matthew is painting this picture of Jesus as the the true and the better prophet, the true and the better king. But it's important not just that Jesus went up and sat down, but also that he he went and he sat down. Where did he go? He went up to the mountain. Now, all through the Bible, we see very important things associated with mountains, right? That typically, when God speaks to his prophet, it comes on the mountain, right? So we think back to Moses. Where does Moses get the Ten Commandments? He gets the Ten Commandments on the mountain. But what we have here is we have Jesus not going up on the mountain, as a prophet, but we have Jesus speaking from the mountain as God, right? Jesus speaking from the mountain as the king. And so Matthew begins by by showing us that this Jesus is different than any prophet that has come before. This Jesus is different than than any, any other follower of the Lord that has ever come, that this Jesus is the king, this Jesus is the Messiah, that this Jesus is God. And so here in verses 3, 4, and 5, we we get this picture of who the blessed are. Verse 3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, as we read through the Beatitudes, that word blessed is repeated over and over and over again. And we're not going to stop every time we see that word. So let's just go ahead and understand what that word blessed means now. Now, it can be translated in different ways. Most translations have kept that word blessed. They followed the King James Version. But some newer translations, they translate it as happy are. So happy are the poor in spirit. Others, there's another translation that translates it as flourishing. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. Now, uh, all of these words, all these different ways to translate that word blessed, they really kind of give us a different picture of what Jesus is talking about here. None of them are wrong. In fact, when taken together, they really kind of fill out what this word means. Now, blessed literally means privileged recipient of divine favor. So, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, they are privileged recipients of God's favor because they are poor in spirit. Now, we could translate it as happy. A.T. Robertson uh, was a Greek scholar of a, a past generation. He said this. He said, it is a pity that we have not kept the word happy to the high and holy place where Jesus placed it. So when we think about happiness, typically we think about something much more shallow than what Jesus is talking about here, right? What makes me happy? We know what makes me happy? A, a peanut butter banana concrete from Andes. That makes me happy, right? Uh, what, what makes me happy? A steak makes me happy. The happiness that Jesus is talking about here is something far, far greater than an Andes concrete or than a steak or whatever it may be. Jesus is elevating happiness. And so I think it's helpful here that we, we don't say happy here because we've got the wrong vision of happiness oftentimes, right? That, that these are those who are blessed. And so who are the blessed? Well, they are the poor in spirit. They're those who mourn. They're the meek. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that those would be the blessed? That Jesus says blessed or happy are the meek, happy are the poor in spirit, happy are those who mourn. When we read this, we want to stop and say, but Jesus, mourning is the opposite of happiness. How, how am I blessed by, by being mournful or by being poor in spirit or by being meek. None of this sounds like a blessed state to be, and typically those who mourn have a reason to mourn. But see, every one of these sayings, every one of these beatitudes are painting good news for us. See, blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, well, who are the poor in spirit? The, the poor in spirit are those who recognize that they have nothing to bring to the Father. The poor in spirit are, are those who recognize that they have nothing to bring to God. They have no way to earn their way to heaven. And so what does Jesus say? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit because they get heaven. Right? They, they get heaven because they understand that they haven't earned it. They haven't deserved it. They haven't done anything to climb their way to heaven. And it's when we realize that we can't or that we don't deserve heaven that Jesus gives us heaven. He says, blessed are those who mourn. What are they mourning over? They're mourning over sin. They're mourning not only over just their sin, but they're mourning over sin in the world. And whenever we mourn like that, well, we have this promise that we'll be comfort comforted. Blessed are the meek. Now, when we read about blessed are the meek, maybe we think, well, yeah, that makes sense that Jesus would say that. But remember, Jesus wasn't speaking to 21st century America, right? Jesus was speaking to 
ancient listeners. And when they heard someone called them meek, that wasn't a compliment. Those were fighting words, right? That, that was a slap in the face. Oh, you think I'm meek? I'll show you what meek is, right? I'll show you what it means to be meek. But Jesus says, blessed are you who are meek because you're going to inherit the earth. That, that meekness, it carries with it this idea of being slow to anger, of not holding a grudge, of, of assuming the best. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. See, what the Sermon on the Mount does, and the Beatitudes here specifically, is, is Jesus is describing life in the kingdom. And what we see here in these first few Beatitudes is that citizenship in the kingdom doesn't come to those who think they deserve it. Citizenship in the kingdom doesn't come to those who think, you know what, I've been a pretty good Christian. It, it doesn't come to those who think, you know, I, I, I've kind of got it all figured out. I, I, I'm, I'm really getting there. I, I'm a pretty good person. That's not who citizenship in the kingdom is given to. Citizenship in the kingdom is given to those who realize that they're poor in spirit, who realize that they have nothing in their hands to bring simply to the cross I cling. But that's who gets citizenship in the kingdom. And see, these truths, they're countercultural, not just now, but, but they would have been then as well, right? This is countercultural, that you'd be poor in spirit, and that you'd be blessed by mourning, and that you'd be blessed by being meek. See, the blessed are those who put their hope in what is to come, not the right now. Jesus says you can be poor in spirit because yours is the kingdom of heaven. You can be blessed when you mourn. Why can you be blessed when you mourn? Because you're going to be comforted, and who are you going to be comforted by? You're not going to be comforted by your husband or your wife. You're going to be comforted by a mother or a father or, or by a son or a daughter or by a brother or a sister. Those who mourn, they get comforted, but they get comforted by God. Blessed are you when you're meek because you're going to inherit the earth. And so even though it seems like you're not gaining anything, even though it seems like everyone around you is advancing and you're not, that's okay because your hope isn't in now. Your hope is in then. Right? Your hope is in later. See, future hope is it's not in what might happen or what might occur, but it's in what will happen and what will occur. This is one of my favorite times of the year and also one of the most frustrating times of the year for me. As a college football fan, this is the time when every fan base thinks this is our team's year, right? Every fan base thinks that their team has made all of the right moves in the offseason, and so they're going to win it all this year. They, they finally have all of the pieces. Everything is going to happen. And yet what we know is that for almost every team, their hope is misplaced. They're hoping in what is not going to happen. Now, maybe, maybe you're not a, a sports fan. That's fine. Same thing happens in politics with politicians as well, right? We finally get the right candidate. The right candidate's going to run, and suddenly everything's going to be okay. The right candidate's going to get elected, and suddenly everything's going to be okay. And then what happens? Nothing really changes. See, we put our hope in what might happen. But what Jesus is calling us to here in the Beatitudes is to put our hope in what will happen. And when we put our hope in what will happen, then we have confidence for today. See, when we have a future hope, we know that, you know, the Lord has promised this to me. And when the Lord promises to me, it is as good as done. And so I can hold to it. I can cling to it. And what Jesus promises here aren't things that might happen. No, they are things that will happen. Jesus never fails. He, he never lets us down. He, he doesn't say, blessed are the poor in spirit because they'll probably inherit the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn because I'm predicting that they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek because if everything goes right, they'll inherit the earth. And that's what Jesus says. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. There's no question about what happens to the poor in spirit and to the meek and to the mournful. This is who the blessed are. But Jesus keeps going. He shows us who the blessed are, and then he shows us what the blessed do. Now, these spiritual convictions in verses 3, 4, and 5, they, they don't just stay in the head and the heart. They, they move to life. And so look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, those words hunger and thirst, they carry, they carry with it this idea of this deep desire. Right, we all know what it's like to feel those hunger pains, right? My two little boys regularly tell me, Daddy, I am starving to death. <laughs> Say, son, you're not even hungry yet, right? You just ate. But, but we know those hunger pains, right, that I just need to eat. We know what it's like to just desire that cold glass of water. Maybe yesterday you were doing some work in the yard, right? Maybe you mowed the lawn or you pulled some weeds or, or you did something and, and it hits you, man, I just need a drink of water. I, I desire that food. I desire that water. And once I get it, if I could just have it, then I'd be satisfied. Then I would be quenched. Well, this is what Jesus is talking about here. It's a strong desire for righteousness. And this righteousness here is talking about a righteous life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to live like Jesus. Blessed are those eager to live as God has called us to. Now, every beatitude has a promise. And here in verse 6, we see what this promise is. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? For they shall be satisfied. This longing that we have to live for righteousness... That is a desire, that is a longing that the Lord delights to fulfill. We pray that prayer, Lord, help me to live like Jesus today. And whenever we pray that prayer, we can guarantee that our God is committed to helping us live like Jesus. Our God is committed to helping us be like Jesus. But look at verse 7. He says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Now, merciful, it has this idea of being concerned for people in their need. It's not quick to take offense. It's slow to anger. In other words, blessed are those who are everything that our world is not. Blessed are the merciful. Well, there's no room for mercy in cancel culture, right? There's no room for mercy when disagreement means that now we can't even be friends. Not just that we can't be friends, we can't be friends on Facebook, right? And that's like fake friends. That's not even real friends. <laughs> it, it, being merciful is everything that our world is not. But if we want mercy, then we have to be merciful. Verse 8, he said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, the blessed don't just project holiness. The blessed live holy lives. 
See, see, it's easy to be pure in lifestyle, but to be guilty in heart. It's easy to be pure when people are watching, but to be guilty when no one's looking. But here's the thing, God's always looking, right? We can't hide anything from him. This is why Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who live pure lives. No, he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Well, what does it mean to be pure in heart? Being pure in heart is being free from moral guilt. It's having, in many ways, a pure conscience. Have you ever been accused of something that you didn't do? Isn't that the most freeing thing in the world? I didn't do it, right? I am innocent. There is no evidence. You can't hold that against me. The blessed are pure in heart. It's not just people who, who claim to be Christians, not just people who claim to live holy lives, but it's people who, who practice holiness, who, who seek holiness, who strive for holiness. And why are they blessed? For they shall see God. They will see God. This is a promise. In this promise, they shall see God. This is a promise for now and a promise that is to come. See, th- th- this seeing God, we know that no one can see God and live, right? If you know your Old Testament, then you know that Moses, he, he, he wanted to see God. He, he said, Lord, let me behold your glory. And you remember what the Lord did? The Lord hit him in the cleft of a rock. He said, you can see my back, but because Moses, if you see my face, you'll die. That's how holy our God is. That's how glorious our God is. So how do we see God? Well, well it's a promise for now because those who are pure in heart They enjoy communion with God. Those who are pure in heart, they enjoy an intimate relationship with him. So if we want to see God, one of the ways we see God now is by striving for holiness, striving to live that that righteous life. And as we do, we can be guaranteed that there is a reward. And that reward is that we will get to see our God. And what the Bible says is that when we see him, we will be made like him. But there's a promise that is future to this as well, that that those who are pure in heart, and really, we can't make ourselves pure in heart. We know that from the rest of the testimony of Scripture. We know that from Jesus' own words, that Jesus makes us pure in heart. But those whose hearts have been made pure by the blood of Christ, then we get to see God then. Right, we get to be with God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, to strive for holiness without which no one can see the Lord. See, here, here's the point of these Beatitudes. Those who are desperate for God will be blessed. That's what, that's what we have here. We have this desperation, right? This hunger and thirst. This understanding that I've got to be merciful because I've received mercy. This purity in heart that I don't have anything else to cling to, so I'm going to cling to Jesus, and he's going to, he's going to cleanse me. I wonder if desperation is something that marks our discipleship. I wonder if desperation is something that marks your relationship with the Lord. I've yet to read the book that teaches you how to be desperate, right? To, to long for, to be desperate for God's work and God's power and God's grace in your life. Are we desperate for God in a way that changes how we live? Are we desperate for God in a way that changes how we work? Parents, are you desperate for God in a way that changes the way you parent your kids because you understand that God has parented you with grace and mercy, and so now that that grace and mercy overflows? Husbands, are, are we desperate in the way that we relate to our wives? 
That, that we're going to love them the way that Christ has loved us. Wives, are you desperate in the way that you love your husbands? Does your desperation for God bleed out into everything that you do and all that you are? See, here's the truth. Desperate people do radical things. Desperate people do desperate things. And so the question we've got to ask ourselves is, are we ready to radically reorient our lives to be satisfied by God? See, this is what the Beatitudes are. The Beatitudes are a radical reorientation of our lives. They're a radical reorientation of what the world looks like. And this is the call of God to us. That we radically reorient our lives, but this radical reorientation is only possible because of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And so this isn't something that we can accomplish on our own. This isn't something, don't, don't hear me say that, hey, you need to be merciful, and the way that you're going to be mercy is you just got to figure it out. The way that you're going to have a pure heart is you just got to figure it out. No, what Jesus is saying here, Jesus, in all of the Beatitudes, he's assuming a new heart. He's assuming that he's speaking to his disciples who have been called by him and who are following him. And so he's assuming that a changed heart issues forth in a changed life. And so, well, what does the changed life look like? Well, the changed life looks like this. The changed life looks like everything that our world is not. The changed life looks like everything that our world should be but can't be. So here in the Beatitudes, we see who the blessed are, we see what the blessed do, and finally we see this, how the blessed live. See, the Beatitudes are a vision for life. One of the things that I've been convicted by as I've read through the Beatitudes, as I've studied the Beatitudes this week is this, is that it's clear from the Beatitudes that Jesus is not concerned only with what we think and believe, and he is not concerned only in the way that we live. He's concerned with all of who we are, right? Jesus is after all of us. He, he wants every part of us. And so here in these last few verses, we see how the blessed live. Look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemaking makes sense for those who would be called sons of God, right? After all, that's what the Son of God came to do. Right? He came to make peace by the blood of his cross. Now, this is a shocking statement for Jesus' audience. Remember Jesus' audience, he's speaking to a Jewish audience. They, they're seeing Jesus do all of these wonderful works. And so they know, okay, this Jesus seems to be the Messiah. But what we know is that the Messiah that they were looking for didn't look anything like Jesus. Right? The Messiah that they were looking for wasn't a peacemaker, he was a warmaker. He, he, he didn't come to set up a peaceful reign. He, he came to set up a kingdom. He came to kick people out of the land. He, he came to reestablish a kingdom. The Messiah they were looking for... He rode in on a war horse, not a donkey. But Jesus says, not blessed are those who make war. He, he doesn't even say blessed are those who make war in my name. He says, blessed are those who make peace. Why? For they shall be called sons of God. In verse 10, he, he keeps flipping the world upside down. Look at what he says. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's almost as if this beatitude anticipates the objection coming off the heels of being a peacemaker. Right? Blessed are those who, who are peacemakers, they'll be called sons of God. Whoa, Jesus, you came to make war. You came to defeat our enemies. And right away, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Well, what is persecution? Well, it's, it's suffering for the faith. 
See, Jesus says you should be looking for suffering, not for war. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. What's the promise? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, how does persecution lead to the kingdom of heaven? Because here's the thing. Persecution on this earth reminds us of the nature of the kingdom. It reminds us that the kingdom is, it's here already, but it's not yet fully seen. See, the kingdom is here already in that the Lord is ruling and reigning in the hearts of his people. But we know that there's coming a day when the kingdom will be more fully seen, when Jesus returns and he establishes his kingdom on the earth. And so here we have this hope that, you know, you can be persecuted now because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now notice why he says you'd be persecuted. You'd be persecuted for righteousness sake. So it's not that you're persecuted because you're a jerk. It's not that you're persecuted because of this or that. No, it's persecution because you've desired to live a holy and a righteous life. See, one of the things that I think we need to be careful about is we need to be careful with what we call persecution. See, many of us have not experienced persecution. By God's grace, most of us never will. But when we talk about persecution here in the United States, I think that in many ways that's a slap in the face to our brothers and sisters that are suffering all around the world. Right? This morning, we had brothers and sisters all around the world gathering in secret because the government was seeking to destroy them. And so we need to be careful about what we call persecution. Now in verses 11 and 12, he's, he's not giving us a new beatitude. Instead, what he's doing is he's He's giving us an explanation. He's filling out verse 10. So he says, blessed are you. He gives us, verse 11, he shows us what does persecution look like. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, blessed are when that happens. Look at verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. <clears throat> when you're persecuted, rejoice and be glad, because your reward, it's not on this earth. It's not on this earth. Your reward is in heaven. The, the logic is, is that if my reward is in heaven, then that means I'll be in heaven one day too. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. What he's saying, they persecute the prophets, they're going to persecute you. And so when we encounter suffering, and, and I don't want to downplay that many of us probably will experience some kind of suffering for the faith. Whether it be... Uh, a snide remark, or whether it be whatever it may, however it may come. But when that happens, we don't have to be concerned. We don't have to worry. Why? Because our reward is in heaven. When we're persecuted, we can rejoice and be glad because when we're persecuted, all it does is it reminds us that we're one day closer to heaven. Right? Here's good news for the Christian this morning. You are one day closer to heaven today than you were yesterday. Right? You're one day closer to heaven today than you were yesterday morning. That's good news for us today. John Huss, he was a forerunner to the Reformation. He lived in the 14s and 1500s. He, he was ex excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church for his teaching on justification by faith alone. He, he was excommunicated, and they told him, stop preaching. And so he said, not only am I going to keep preaching, but I'm going to start writing books too. And so they eventually found him. They arrested him. They imprisoned him for 19 months. And finally, he was put on trial. And every time he would try to speak, the people in the, the courtroom, they would begin yelling louder and louder and louder so that no one could hear what Huss was saying. And at the end of his kangaroo court, he was sentenced to death by burning on the stake. And, and as they led him to the stake, they, 
They tied him to the stake that he would be burned on, and they covered his, his wrist in, in wet rope, and he said, it's no bother, my Lord's chains were heavier than this. And then they gave him one last chance to recant. One last chance to say, you know what, I actually don't believe what I said. And this is what he said. He said, I taught all men repentance and remission of sins according to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For that gospel, I am here with cheerful mind and courage, ready to suffer death. What I taught with my lips, I now seal with my blood. Where does that kind of courage come from? Where does that kind of faith built? Well, it comes from the good life. It comes from a future hope that gives present confidence. It comes when we know that I've got hope for tomorrow. And so because I've got hope for tomorrow, then I can have confidence for today. That because I have hope for tomorrow, it doesn't matter what may come here. You can kill me. You can stone me. You can light me on fire. But whenever it's over, I get to be with Jesus. And so the question we've got to ask ourselves this morning is, where is your hope? Remember the good life that we talked about? Are you looking for the good life and the things that you can buy and in the vacations that you can go on and the, the gifts you can give your family? Or are you looking for the good life at the feet of Jesus? See, see what Jesus tells us here is that if we're looking for the good life anywhere other than at his feet, then we're going to be disappointed. We might get riches, we might get power, we might get fame, we might get possessions, and at the end of the day, we'll realize that it was all worthless. It was all for nothing. Wouldn't it be sad if the best thing that my eternity ever held was to sit on a beach on the west coast of Florida and watch a manatee swim by? See, apart from Christ, that's the closest thing to heaven many of us will ever get. But here's the thing. Because of Christ, that's the closest thing to hell I'll ever get. And so this morning, I wonder, are you putting your hope in Christ? Are you putting your hope in the, the finished work on the cross? That on the cross, Jesus Christ took the penalty for your sin and for my sin? That God's wrath was poured out on him, and because God's wrath was poured out on him, it doesn't have to be poured out on me and you. And that then Jesus was buried, and he rose three days later, and he rose three days later. He didn't climb out with a creak in his back. He jumped up and kicked the tomb open, proving that he had defeated death. He had defeated sin, and now all those who put their faith and their hope in Christ can be saved. Have you done that? Maybe today is the day. Maybe today is the day that you need to stop putting your hope. You need to stop looking for the good life and everything else. And you need to start looking for the good life in Jesus Christ. You need to start looking for your hope and your satisfaction and your pleasure and your fulfillment. Not in the things of the world, but in the things of Jesus. Maybe, maybe this morning you'd say, Ethan, I, I, am, a, I am a Christian 
I'm a follower of Jesus, but you know what? My eyes have been pulled. My focus has been turned. And so, Ethan, you know what? I've been saying, I've been saying I want the good life, which is Jesus plus some money. Which is Jesus plus some of this, or, or Jesus plus some of that. I can promise you that that is not the good life. Not because I've experienced, but because Jesus says that no one can serve two masters. You end up hating one and serving the other. And so maybe, maybe this morning you, you need to repent. Maybe this morning it's not that you've been looking for the good life in money. Maybe you've been looking for the good life in your family. Maybe you've been asking your kids to be what they can never be. Maybe you've been asking your husband or your wife to be what they could never be. Maybe you've been asking your job to be what it could never be, that I will finally find fulfillment in my job. I think that we were created to work. I think that work is actually a gift that the Lord has given us. But your job was never created to give to you what only Jesus can. And so maybe this morning you need to take whatever it is and you need to lay it at the feet of Jesus. And you say, Jesus, I don't want this anymore if it means that I get less of you. And so I'm going to pray, and, and we're, going to, we're going to sing. And as we sing, maybe you just need to cry out to the Lord. Maybe you need to ask the Lord to save you. Maybe you need to pray something like, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I, I know that my sin separates me from you. And God, I need a Savior. I need Jesus to come and to save me and to forgive me and to give me a new heart and a new life. And here is the guarantee that when you pray that in faith, Jesus saves you. Not because of what you prayed. Not because it's some kind of magic spell, but if that is the cry of your heart, if you want to be satisfied by Jesus, who can, is the one who only can, then he's going to honor that and he's going to answer that prayer. Maybe this morning you need to pray, Lord, take all of these other things because I only want Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, thank you for Jesus. Lord, thank you that in Christ you have given us access to the good life and that Jesus has told us exactly what the good life looks like. And that because of Jesus, we can have that hope for tomorrow, which gives us confidence for today. And so, Father, I pray that you would you would sink that deep down into us. Lord, I pray this morning that, that we would not leave this place until we know that we have that hope. Father, I pray for those in here who, who maybe today they need to trust you for the first time. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they do that. Father, I pray that today would be the day that they stop looking to everything else for satisfaction and they start looking to you. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in here this morning who, who maybe they're experiencing, as we all do, that tug or that pull to focus on everything else, or that, that tug or that pull to, to ask our job or our family or our bank account to satisfy us in ways that only you can. Father, I pray this morning they would come back to you. They would come home. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.